0: listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you stand as we join together to humble ourselves under God's Word? A reading from God's Word today comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, Verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated.
1: Well, we're continuing in our study of the book of of Galatians this morning. It's a study we began last week uh, because we're trying to grasp the core of the gospel message, the good news message, as St. Paul understood it. Galatians is particularly helpful for us in this endeavor uh, because Paul is writing to a multi-ethnic group of believers living in a diverse pagan polytheistic world who are trying to understand the core foundation of what they believe and trying to figure out how to live it out faithfully in a world where political and social and ethnic and religious forces are exerting pressure on all sides. So, nothing like today. Yeah. So, in a context like that, Paul is trying to help them answer this question about faithfulness, How do you stay faithful to God, especially when you know that in a world like that, faithfulness to God will never make everyone happy? You're never going to make everyone happy, so how do you choose whom to please? How how do you choose who who to privilege in this, the, the way you live your life? How do you choose who to try to get approval from? And if you can't make everyone happy, how do you know what to do to at least make God happy? That's the question that's buried in Galatians 1.10. And on the face of it, this verse looks pretty simple and pretty clear. Who is Paul trying to please, people or God? Well, if you have to choose, the answer is obvious, right? You choose God, please God. But there's more going on, I think, underneath the surface of this verse and in the context of the letter as a whole that complicates that simplicity a little bit. So, we're going to look at Galatians 1.10 through the lens of that question. Is Paul a people-pleaser or a God-pleaser? A people-pleaser or a God-pleaser? Neither. Neither. Let's jump in. Galatians 1:10. For am, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, first category, people pleaser. Is Paul a people pleaser? Well, at least that's clear. No. No, Uh, the verse is pretty clear about that. There's one phrase repeated three times, almost identically, and if you've got one of these scripture journals or you write in your Bible, grab a pen and underline this. Seeking the approval of man, please man, please man, or please people. For a few moments here, I'm going to skip over the first of these three phrases, seeking the approval of man or of God. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. I want to focus on the phrase that's identical repeated twice, please man, because this key or this phrase is the key to understanding the accusations that Paul is facing. Uh, What the troublesome teachers have accused him of that he heard about in Antioch and so fired off this letter to the churches in Galatia, if we understand what he's being accused of, it kind of helps us understand maybe a little bit of the heat that's rising up out of these verses in this letter. Now, Remember the context here, verse 9, Paul has basically just said, uh, and this is my creative paraphrase of it, by the way. Paul has basically just said, you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If anyone preaches good news to you that differs from the good news that I preach to you, well, that person deserves to be cast out of the community of God. That's where their preaching is leading people. And then he follows it in verse 10. Now, does that sound to you? like I'm trying to win approval from people? Does that sound to you like I'm trying to make people happy with me, that I'm a, I'm a people pleaser? Now, I'll put it that way, a people pleaser intentionally, because these two words that here in English are rendered, please man or, or you know, please humans, please people, it is a very specific Greek phrase that is only used twice in the New Testament, here and in one other of Paul's letters. And outside of the New Testament, in the Greek-speaking world, it is never used except in one community. Strict, religious, Pharisaic Jews. Zealous Pharisees. You know, that community that Paul used to be a highly influential, super successful leader in. In Paul's community, there were whole stories and songs condemning the people-pleasers because the people-pleasers were compromisers. They were hypocrites. They were prepared to cut corners on obeying God's law in order to make it easier for Jews to live alongside pagans, to be liked by their pagan neighbors. People-pleasers even went so far, this is just horrible, they went so far as to go into pagans' homes and eat meals with them. Just absolutely unacceptable. You may be wondering why. Why is that so bad? Well, it helps to understand the kind of Jewish mindset, especially the strict Pharisaic Jewish mindset at the time. The world was divided into two groups, the righteous and the sinner's. Two groups, the righteous and the sinners, or the justified and the condemned. And when God returned, when the God of Israel returned and brought heaven back down to earth, who's going to inherit heaven? The righteous. So, it's important to know who the righteous are and to know how you can be seen, how you are one of this group, the righteous. This is a big deal because, see, God had, had called Israel to be holy. That's all throughout the Old Testament. And, and the Jews knew that their collective holiness was directly linked to the return of the Messiah, to God coming and bringing heaven back down to earth. So if the Jewish people compromised with the pagan world, they would dilute their community's righteousness, in a sense. They would pollute themselves. And if they did that, Messiah wouldn't come back, God wouldn't come back. If they let it get so bad, then what had happened to them once before might happen again. God might allow the pagans to actually overrun them, wipe them off the face of the earth, clean them off the map. That's a very real threat at this time when they're under Roman occupation. You can see why then preserving the righteousness of the community was absolutely vital. And how do you know who the righteous are? They're the ones who keep Torah, the ones who keep the covenant law, the ones who prove that they're faithful to God by keeping the law as strictly as possible, which means observing the Sabbath, keeping uh, the circumcision laws, refusing to eat unclean foods, and certainly by refusing to eat unclean foods with unclean people, it's like a double no-no. That sounds a little maybe off or or odd to us, Uh, but think of it this way. Strict Jews basically lived with a pandemic mindset at all times. Gentiles lived in a world full of idols. Everything they did was dictated by the idols of the home or of the community or of the broader city or of the country they lived lived in. And if there's one thing Jews knew about idols, they knew they corrupt you, they pollute you, they kill you. And their pollution is infectious. So if you got too close to a pagan, to a Gentile, they were a threat to you. They were essentially a threat to public health and safety of the Jewish community. Their lives were as polluted as someone who goes around licking high-touch surfaces and, like, making out with sick people. Okay? They're dangerous. And they're dangerous in the sense, like, they... They enjoy sneezing in your face just for fun. Like, these are people that you need to stay away from because they are infectious and there's no vaccine for it. So Jews need to stay away from pagans. And that largely worked in the parts of the world with large Jewish communities in Judea and parts of Galilee where the the community could be self-sustaining. But for Jews living as minorities... In minority communities around the Roman world, it just wasn't practical. You couldn't make a living without interacting with Gentiles. You couldn't do business. You couldn't survive. You can't avoid contact at all times. Business interactions and social interactions and even friendships were inevitable when you're constantly rubbing shoulders with pagans. So some less strict teachers had come along. They said, well, the only way to stay pure among the pagans is to redefine purity. So they said to the Jewish minority communities that were all spread throughout the, the Roman world, hey, don't, don't worry about being super careful to keep all the food laws and the purity laws and the Sabbath laws and the ethnic uh, separation laws. Like all of that stuff, that's, it just doesn't work in our modern world. So don't worry about it. It's, it's never been a big deal anyway. which drove strict, zealous Jews like Paul just absolutely nuts because these guys are hypocrites. They're compromisers. They're people pleasers, and they're actively introducing infection into the Jewish community. They're a threat to public health. They have to be stopped. And Paul, who used to be one of these guys... One of these guys who thought this way, who believed this way, and who would have gladly accused the Galatian Jews of being people pleasers themselves, now finds that accusation turned right back on him. Paul, you're nothing but a people pleaser. You're softening the edges of what it means to be a follower of God to make it easier for pagans to come follow this Jesus you're talking about. He's these teachers who are troubling the church at Galatia, that's the way Paul describes them, you're troubling the churches, that they've come to the churches in Galatia and to the Jews and the Gentile Jesus believers who are there and are saying, hey, Paul, Paul did a great job telling you about Jesus, but he, he, he only included half the message. He forgot the part about also being righteous. Yes, faith in Jesus, of course, but don't forget, you also... you also have to keep Torah. You have to keep the community righteousness. You have to keep yourself righteous. If you don't, who knows what kind of destruction you could unleash among us. This isn't just about you not being pure enough. Like, it affects all of us, and if we let you in with your unrighteousness, God may not come back. So this is a big deal. It's a problem because... Paul's saying the good news is that Jews who believe in Jesus don't have to keep the covenant law anymore. They don't have to maintain their righteousness. And he goes even further, and he welcomes pagans, Gentiles, who are like sinners by nature. They're polluted because they don't follow Yahweh. And he's welcoming Gentiles. He's saying, look, if you have faith in Jesus as the crucified and resurrected Messiah of Israel, that enough right there is... is, Proof enough that you are part of God's new community. You are welcomed in, and you don't have to keep the law. The law that, in their minds, keeps people righteous. So Paul is being accused here of saying, like, you're just making it easy for unclean pagans to come to this Jesus. guy. This is a threat. This is a problem. So maybe you can see why Paul's a little fired up in some of this letter. Because he taught the churches, and he's going to teach them again throughout this letter, that keeping Torah, keeping the covenant law was never about making you righteous enough for God to come back. The law was given to show you that you can never be righteous enough on your own. That's why he'll go on to argue faith played such a huge role in the history of the people of Israel, in Abraham, in the Psalms, in the prophets. Faith keeps showing up over and over and over again. That's why faith plays such a huge role in this new Messiah-believing community. Because he taught them whenever anyone believes that the crucified and resurrected Jesus is Israel's Messiah, that makes them full members of God's people without keeping the covenant law, without food laws or Sabbath laws or circumcision laws or the ethnic isolation laws. And so he's got to be very clear here. Okay, I know that looks like I'm going soft, like I'm one of these people pleasers, but he'll go on to argue later in the letter. Look, if I were actually a compromiser, if I were actually preaching a message that was going to keep the majority of people happy, you know what I'd tell you to do? Keep the law. Because all of those social and political and religious and ethnic pressures that are all coming at you from every side, like the best way to keep the most number of people happy would just be pretend you're Jewish. Pretend you're a Jew and keep the law. We'll get into those other dynamics a little more next week. For now, let me summarize this people-pleaser concept. See, Paul's being accused of softening the corners of Jewish identity and Jewish practice, being a people-pleaser in order to make it easier for Jewish and non-Jewish Jesus followers to think that they are good and godly and righteous people. But he's also accusing them right back. Paul's accusing them right back, saying, look, when you add Jewish covenant law keeping onto what the Messiah has done, you're robbing the good news of the Messiah of all of its power. You can't tell people that it is their faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus that God looks at and counts them as righteous, while also telling them that it's their adherence to and keeping of the covenant law that God looks at and counts as righteous. It's one or the other. You can't have both. Each does complete damage to the other. So to continue to insist on keeping the law is to insist that the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished nothing. And where's the good news in that? So he says, anyone who says that that is good news should be thrown out of the family of God. And then in verse 10, does that sound to you like I'm trying to be a people pleaser? No. No, that's pretty obvious. Paul is not doing what he's doing. He's not teaching what he's teaching in order order to win approval from people or to make people happy with him. And he's certainly not a people pleaser in the sense that strict Jews thought about it. He's not that compromiser or hypocrite threatening the righteousness of the community, threatening the return of the Messiah, because, as Paul will argue, Messiah has already come. That changes everything. So look back at verse 10. Does that automatically mean then if Paul is not seeking the approval of man, he is seeking the approval of God? Not necessarily. Take a look at the verse. There's a couple ways we could read this, even these exact same words, but just change our intonation a little bit to understand it in different ways. And you could read it like this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Right, like there's a choice, it's one or the other, you decide. Or you could read it like this, "For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Right, implied answer is no. Every commentator I read about this passage uh, acknowledge that there's this odd ambiguity in the word seeking the approval of, and that it, it, it can be confusing to understand, okay, how are we exactly supposed to take what Paul is saying here? Well, I think he's exploiting the ambiguity of the phrase to get us to sort of hear it one way and then do a double take and say, well, maybe no, Maybe not. So let's read it in context with verse 9. Verse 9, I've said it before and I'll say it again, if anybody preaches a good news to you other than the good news that I preach to you, that person deserves to be kicked out of the family of God. That's where their preaching is taking people. Now, does that sound to you like I'm trying to win approval with people or even that I'm trying to win approval with God? No, my strict adherence to the gospel message, to the good news, isn't the basis, uh, isn't what makes you happy, and it's not the basis on which God approves of me either. Paul had already tried the strict adherence path to making God happy, and it didn't work. He already knows, you you don't get God's approval by keeping Torah, you know, that strict adherence to the covenant law. And he goes on in the verses to follow to explain all of that about how he persecuted the church, how he was advancing in Judaism more rapidly than anyone expected, how he was extremely zealous to keep the law, and his conclusion is, that got me nowhere with God. It took grace to get through to Paul. He describes it in verse 15. This is in the, the middle of a long sort of uh, autobiography arc that we're going to look at next week. But just verse 15 and 16 right now, he says, but, but when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me, Paul describes the grace that came to him from God and he doesn't use a single verb of which he is the actor. God's the actor. God set Paul apart. God called him by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. All grace. So for a type A guy who's all about strict adherence, zealous for knowledge, who's going who's to do this Jewish thing, and he's going to do it. He's going to be the best Jew he could possibly believe. I think his biggest temptation was to come to Jesus in faith and then go, I'm going to do this Jesus thing the best way I possibly can. Like, I'm going to pray all the time. I'm going to read all the things. I'm going to do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. Like, that's how I'm going to get God to approve of me That would be to undermine the good news itself. God is not persuaded to approve of Paul because of his theological acumen. Because he knows how to parse the particularities of the Old Testament in a New Testament world. Because he can put all of the different pieces together and read the Old Testament and see the story of the Messiah come all the way through. That's great, and I'm glad he can. But God doesn't approve of Paul because... He's theologically erudite. That's, that's not it at all. And God doesn't approve of Paul. He's not persuaded to approve of Paul because of Paul's moral performance. Because he has the discipline to hold himself to a high standard of moral excellence because he can spot the inconsistencies between his life and his preaching, and he can apply his own preaching to his own life thoroughly, systematically, rigorously, programmatically over and over and over again. That's good, but that's not why God approves of Paul. Paul. And God's not persuaded to approve of Paul because of his ability to argue on God's behalf out in public. Like we read in Acts to go toe-to-toe with pagans and religious leaders of other traditions and to stand his ground with elite philosophers and argue on behalf of the gospel and on behalf of the God of Israel. That's not the reason why God approves of Paul not because he's a fighter willing to stand up for the truth no matter what happens. See, when, when Paul asked the Galatians there in verse 10, does what I'm saying sound to you like I'm trying to get people to approve of me or that I'm trying to get God to approve of me? The answer he expects is, is No, because Paul isn't trying to please people. And he's not trying to to please God in the sense of getting approval from God for what he does. Who is Paul trying to please? The answer is no one. Because he already has God's approval. He already has God's pleasure. You know, as much as as we may not want to admit it, the majority of our lives, maybe the entirety of our lives, is uh, one big long approval generation project, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Look back on your life. How many of the decisions you made or the things you did were based on trying to get somebody to tell you they're proud of you, they approve of you, you're accepted. Some of us spend the entirety of our lives trying to get people's approval. Everything we do is calculated to win the approval of a father who never said he was proud of us, or, or a mother whose love was conditional, or uh, siblings who didn't stand up for us when they needed to, or friends whose loyalties were, were fickle. I mean, it's so common, it's, it's basically a trope now right? Mom's love was conditional, and so I get married, and I need my spouse to constantly affirm me because I I didn't have it when I was younger. You know, my dad couldn't give verbal affirmation in the way I craved, and so I become like a sponge for approval, trying to soak it, trying to draw it out of anyone who will give it to me, and, and absolutely being shattered when anyone criticizes me. The good news is, this doesn't magically go away when you become a Christian. We just import all of it into our lives with Jesus right? And, and so even as we talk about Jesus, the temptation to soften it, to, to round off the edges, to, to tell people like, hey, Jesus is here. He loves you. He wants you to be happy. He, he'll even forgive your sins if that's what it takes to, for you to be happy. Like, this is what we tell people and we, we forget or we conveniently leave out the whole part about leaving all of that behind and going out into a new way of living, apprenticed to Jesus, living out Messiah-shaped love, because that's hard, It's good, it's so much better, but it's hard. People like us more when we say, like, hey, Jesus is going to help you find the real you. Don't you want that? The temptation to be a a people pleaser in all areas of our lives, to, to base our approval of ourselves on the expressed approval of others, the temptation, it's always there. And at some point in our adult lives, most of us come to the point where we realize this, that we have constantly been working for the approval of others. If you're just realizing that now, welcome to the club. It's not fun, but we're glad you're here. And when we have this realization, there's like one of two different ways that we can solve the problem. If There's kind of a secular way and a religious way. If you're of a more secular bent, then you'll be told by others and you'll tell yourself, hey, since you can't please everyone, well, then you've got to please yourself. So we look inward, we focus inward. What do I truly want? Who, who, who am I really? And we invest ourselves in in getting that or becoming that or or living that. It manifests in all sorts of ways. Some of us become achievement junkies. We give everything to our jobs and to our projects and and pushing ourselves to be the best so we feel valuable. Or some of us become novelty junkies. We go to the next activity, the next relationship, the next thing, because it's always the next one that's going to make me content. or we become authenticity junkies. Never happy unless we're expressing ourselves fully and completely, and also that expression cannot look at all like anybody else's unique self-expression. Or if you're like me, you become a mastery junkie. You have to know something about everything, ideally everything about everything, that would be nice, and be able to do everything and you can never not know what you're talking about. Often wrong, never in doubt. (laughs) The irony, of course, is whatever your true self is addicted to, whether it's achievement or novelty or authenticity or mastery, or perfectionism or feeling loved or being supported or being self-sufficient or being needed or being whole, The irony is we do our best to be our true, authentic selves, and then we look around to the people around us to see if they like that or not. This is me. What do you guys think? (laughs) Look, here's the true, unique, and individual me. Are you guys all okay with this me? We can't get away from it. We can't escape the temptation to please people. It's always there. So, some of us turn from the sort of secular answer to the question to the religious answer to the question. If I can't please everyone and I can't please myself, maybe at least I can please God. So, we double down on religious practices. We read Scripture daily. We meditate on its meaning. We read through the Bible in a year. We observe the canonical hours. We practice Sabbath. We tithe. We make it to church every Sunday, even if it means streaming the service on our phones while we lie in bed. Hey, babe. It counts. We volunteer in ministries. We support missionaries. On and on it goes. Surely all of that will convince God to approve of us, right? Or we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into moral perfectionism. We set impossibly high standards for ourselves and we beat ourselves up figuratively, sometimes literally when we don't reach those standards. We, we do our best to be more biblical than the Bible, there's anything in there that God says use self-control and wisdom about, we're like, no, just don't do it. That's way more spiritual. We say, look at how high of a bar I've set for myself and I will hold myself to it. And if you're close to me, I'll hold you to it too. And together, the two of us, me being able to change you or the family or the whatever, we're like, God, look, you approve of us, right? Because of how good we are? Because of how seriously we take your word? We make moral standards the judge by which we know if God approves of us or not, whether we're living up to our own standards. Some of us aren't so prone to those first two. Instead, we put all of our energy into making sure we hold the right beliefs. We spend hours and hours reading years and decades studying, thousands of dollars sometime, contemplating, arguing, making sure we can defend our viewpoints as clearly and as convincingly as possible. Of course, we live in fear that we're missing something, that we're we're, we're reading something incorrectly or we're putting the parts together of Scripture wrong somehow or that our theological framework isn't the right one. But hey, if we do our homework well, this is mine in case you can't tell, we're pretty sure we're in the right theological camp. And of course, people who disagree with us disagree because they haven't seen something that I saw, right? It's, it's never that I didn't see something they did, but they, they didn't see something I did. So I may not be able to be morally perfect or religiously devout, but at least I know God will approve of me because I believe the right things, right? Right? You got energy for one more? Because I have eight. I'm only going to use four this morning. The last one. We channel all of our insecurity, all of our wondering whether God approves of us, you know, into these ways, religious practice or moral perfection or rigid orthodoxy, or into just plain old winning, conquering in Jesus' name. Because if we can fight for God, if we can argue for God, if we can convince others to believe in God because of the power of our arguments and the skill of our words, well, then surely God must approve of us. Because not only are we being good, but we're actually like bringing other people along. Like that's, you get like stars for that in (laughs) Awana, right? Not stars, jewels. Thank you for whoever said that. So, religious devotion, moral perfection, theological accuracy, or the willingness to go toe-to-toe with anyone and everyone, anywhere and at any time, through any keyboard. That's how we know God approves of us, right? For Paul, the answer was always, No, no, no. He remembered his old life before coming to Jesus. Hints of it are buried in verse 10 in one little word, still. Circle it. If I were still trying to please people, And if I were still trying to be that guy who did everything right so that people would like me and God would like me, if I were still that guy, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. We know from Paul's biography, he he tried at least all four of those methods I talked about to win the approval of God, to win the approval of other people, to win the approval of his strict Jewish community and it hadn't worked. It never worked. It never will work. Only grace does. Because he's going to go on to argue in the rest of this letter. He'll say at the end of the next chapter, like, I have been crucified with Christ. Not, I have obeyed Christ perfectly, or I I have… been devoted to Christ absolutely. It says, I've been crucified with the Messiah. It's no longer I who live, but the Messiah who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's never anything to do with how well you can be devoted or how right you can be or how pure you can be or how strong you You can be it only ever has has to do with faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me that's what paul says is true for him it's true for me it's it's true for you if you want it there's nothing you or i can do to convince god to approve of us not religious practice not moral perfection not right beliefs not serving in the right ministries Not any of these other things we could think of, not even fighting on his behalf. Our only basis for approval from God is what Jesus, Israel's Messiah, did on our behalf. His life and his death and his resurrection defeated the power, the controlling power of sin and death in us and in the world and gives us new life in Jesus. That's it. That's the only basis for approval from God. See, there's a huge difference between acting in a way that pleases God so that He will accept you and acting in a way that pleases God because He has already accepted you. All of that religious practice and drive for moral excellence and quest for sound doctrine and even the enthusiasm for argument, those can all be good and healthy expressions of faith as long as they follow being approved by God. Not if they're they're the means you use to earn it. Because if all those things are an expression of trying to win people's approval or trying to win God's approval, they'll never set you free. The only thing that will set you free from needing other people's approval or even your own approval of yourself, or even from needing God's approval, is knowing that you already have it. That you are, you are already loved and approved of by God because of Jesus. And so we live for the joy of bringing joy to God. Not to get approval from him, but to rest in it. Let's pray. Father, we do so many things to try to prove to ourselves and to others and, and even to you that you approve of us. So many good things, maybe even all of our good things, are done so that we, we feel like you, you, you like us, you, you look at us and say, oh yeah, that one, that one works hard for me, he's, he's worth loving, she's worth loving. Father, help us to confess not only the the sin that we commit, the evil that we do when we look for approval from others, but help us to confess even the, the damnable good things that we do trying to get approval from you. And help us to rest instead in the approval that we already have through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, and in whom our hope is secure. Amen.